Praise the Lord. God bless all of you. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's all stand. We have a lot to get through tonight. We have a lot to pray for. Amen. So we're just going to jump right into it. He'll allow me to do that tonight. Amen. Uh, we want to continue to pray for Sister Rapids. Uh, she is in need of prayer tonight. Um, kind of under the weather. There's some weird things going on there. And we want God to touch that situation. We want God to heal her completely. Amen. Uh, Sister Karina sent out uh, a prayer request um, for Sheila. It's her, her cousin, Karina's cousin. Uh, she has uh, complications arising from a procedure repairing an aortic tear on her heart valve. She's now paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, she has no insurance. Her husband's been off work while uh, she's been at the hospital. Uh, so we want to pray for that situation. And uh, folks, God is a miracle-working God. He absolutely is. And when we come to Him in faith, we bring our situations and our concerns to Him. He answers. Amen. I was going to pray for Wendy uh, this evening, but she's here and in good health. Amen. God's already taken care of that one. So, praise God. <laughs> praise God. Uh, we want to pray for Kirsten as well. Continue to remember her. Uh, she is out of the hospital, but she's still uh, struggling. She's still not doing well at all. Um, so, we want to pray for her. Amen. Uh, Brother Shepard uh, wants us to pray for the uh, railroad strike, a potential strike. Um, that whole situation, uh, it needs to be resolved. It needed to be resolved three years ago. Um, 2020, yeah. So um, let's, let's pray that God intervenes in that situation. Amen. And uh, I also wanted to, to bring to everyone's attention, uh, you know, Brother DeMuth has just concluded a, a series on teaching Bible studies. And uh, Brother Bob and uh, uh, Carol there, see, they're, uh, they just kind of took that seriously, took that to heart. And um, he has, uh, is it five Bible studies at present? Uh, maybe a few more. Amen. And so uh, I want us to pray for those Bible studies as well. Amen. Folks, God will use whoever's willing. Amen. It doesn't matter your talent, your ability. It doesn't matter how you look or how you don't look. God can even use a bald man. Amen. Amen. <laughs> he sure can. Praise God. So, uh, whosoever will, the Bible says. Amen. We step out in faith and, and God just starts moving. Praise God. So let's pray for these requests. Uh, let's believe that God is a prayer answering God and that He's going to answer and that right early. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God and I am so thankful for You, for Your so great salvation. You are awesome. You are wondrous. You are glorious in this and in every place. Hallelujah, Jesus. We laud and we magnify You because You have all power and You have all authority and You are altogether faithful to us, to the covenant promises that You've established with us. I pray for Sister Rapids. I pray for Kirsten. I pray for Sheila right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I command sickness and disease and infirmity to be gone by the power and by the authority you've given me as a child of the Most High God. And I command healing to take place in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus. We give all the glory and we give all the honor to you because it's by your stripes that, that any one of us are healed. 
We have no power. We have no authority of our own. But You have all of it. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank You, Lord, for divine healing today. I pray for the railroad strike, this entire situation. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that You would come down into this situation and that You would resolve it favorably. That You would resolve it miraculously. I pray. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Pray for these Bible studies uh, that Brother Bob and Carol are are, uh, assembling. I pray for this Bible study group, Lord, that You would meet with them, that You would minister wondrously and gloriously in their midst, that You would anoint the teacher with power and with great authority, that Your Spirit would be present there miraculously, that all present there would receive revelation of truth unto salvation. And I pray for this service this evening, Lord Jesus, that You would meet with each of us wondrously, miraculously. Help us to receive the revelation of truth today. Help us, Lord Jesus, to receive knowledge and wisdom and and understanding from the Lord our God today. Hallelujah, Jesus. And we will worship and we will praise You. We'll give You glory and honor. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are ever and altogether worthy of my worship and of my praise today. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship and we praise You this evening. Thank You, Jesus, for this opportunity You've given us to enter into the presence of Almighty God. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. You're an awesome God and worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our complete and undivided attention tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. He's an awesome God. He's altogether faithful. Praise God. Praise God. God bless you. You can be seated this evening. Amen. Tonight we're going to continue with our study of Genesis 1-11. through uh, The study proper. Amen. We took a little detour last week, uh, but we're going to get back on track this week. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8 are what we're going to use to kind of open it up tonight. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 states this, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. First thing we need to understand is that there is a right and there is a wrong. And it is not up to any one of us to decide what that is. That's up to the Lord our God, and Him only. If you disagree with that, you're welcome to do so. You are. 
You have free choice just like every other human being that's ever been born. Or should the Lord tarry that it will ever be born? But folks, there are consequences to our choices. There always are. There are consequences, both good and bad, to every choice that we make. There are good consequences when we do things correctly. There are bad consequences when we do things incorrectly. And whether it's correct or incorrect is up to God. Not up to you, not up to me. And when we continually do things incorrectly, even though we've been warned, even though we understand the difference between right and wrong, and we choose wrong anyway, folks, that will not always last. God's mercy will not always last. And at some point, judgment will come. Not because God wants it, but because His justice demands it. He's made a way for every one of us to escape His judgment through Jesus Christ and the finished work of His at Calvary. He purchased our salvation for us. We don't have to pay the price. He already did. The time between Adam and Noah was a tumultuous time according to the few verses of Scripture that we have detailing that period of time. This was during the dispensation of conscience. Now, the very first dispensation, we understand, is the dispensation of innocence, before the fall of Adam and Eve. Man and woman were created perfectly. There was no sin. There was no death in the world. All was very good, according to the Lord God. And then, Adam and Eve decided... They chose to go a different path, to take a different route, to try something new, to try it their way. And that introduced sin, and from sin, death, into God's creation. At that point, judgment came, but also a promise. Entering into the dispensation of conscience. Now, conscience, we understand, is that little voice inside of us that tells us, you've been a bad bunny. Mm-hmm. Really? The problem with conscience, though, is that it doesn't say anything until after I've done something wrong. I'm not pricked in my heart until after the fact. The other problem with conscience is that if I ignore what it's telling me, I will, what people call, sear my conscience. It will stop telling me that I'm doing wrong. It will give up on me, as it were. This is the time period that we're talking about. Between the fall of Adam and Eve and the time of Noah, we find we are in the dispensation of conscience. People are following their conscience. It's a time of incredible violence. Genesis 6 and 13 says, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The Hebrew word that's translated violence here means violence, particularly physical violence, or wrong. 
The same word is used in Scriptures such as Psalm 11 and 5, which says, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. And Proverbs 4 and 17, For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. This is not just a violent video game or a violent movie. This is a society that is steeped in violence. Violence against themselves, violence against each other. We read that man's full-time job was to devise new and improved ways to commit evil. Genesis 6 and 5, which we've read, says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The redundancy of that verse ought to strike us. It ought to fill us with some kind of a sense of awe and wonder at the level of evil that was taking place during this time. Every thought, every imagination was only evil continually. Can you imagine a society like that? Maybe you're beginning to. Because that's exactly where our society is headed today. Understand, folks. We're going to read some scriptures here throughout the the study that talks about the end times compared to the days of Noah. I want us to understand how things were before the flood. Because that's how things are going to be before Jesus comes again. We're not there yet. But we're headed there. (laughs) And speaking of, Jesus compares the end days to the days of Noah. Matthew 24, 37-39 says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. We're going to see a few comparisons between the time period of Noah's day and the end times. Something else about this time period that we read is there were giants in the earth in those days. Which brings us back to our discussion of the Nephilim, which we will conclude today. As uh, By way of review, Genesis 6 and 2 says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. They took them wives of all which they chose. Genesis 6 4 says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Now, modern translations generally translate the word giants that we see in the King James Version to Nephilim. We read also in Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 through 33, the spies are coming back with this report. They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, 
and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. I'll read that verse 33 in the, the English Standard Version just to demonstrate. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Giants, Nephilim, same. Now, before we get into some of the theories, some of the ideas surrounding this, uh, I want to mention again the antediluvian or the pre-flood climate and environment. There was an increased, probably, an increased atmospheric pressure. We can demonstrate that there, were probably, there was probably an increased level of oxygen in the atmosphere pre-flood. There was no cosmic radiation, probably, to contend with. I say probably because I wasn't there and no one I know was there. Uh, to give me an eyewitness account, there was only one person there still alive. Uh, and he doesn't say anything specific about these things. I am inferring. These are probably the case, not definitely. If these are true, we have an, a hyperbaric chamber type effect, which rapidly cause, it causes rapid regeneration, rapid healing, uh, and extremely long lifespan. Okay. Understanding that, we have five popular theories on this. One, uh, one of the most popular but very unscriptural, states that the Nephilim were space aliens. That's what the, that's what the thing says. Uh, we're not going to worry too much about that. Uh, there is no biblical basis for it, and um, I don't buy it. So... Uh, if you do, we could talk, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. So, of the four that do have some biblical support, we have these four. Fallen angels bred with women and resulted in giants called Nephilim. This is the most popular of the four that have some biblical support. The sons of God were the result of fallen angels who overtook ungodly men or possessed them to breed with women. They were the Sethites, descendants of Adam's son Seth. Uh, there are some variations that fall under this theory. Uh, the fourth and final is that godly men took ungodly wives, and their descendants, the Nephilim, followed after false gods, rejected the one true God, and fell far from God into wickedness. Now, of these four, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this this evening. Um, I know there's a lot of stuff floating around out there, so I did want to address it to some point. The view that I believe is the most biblically accurate is the fourth. Godly men took ungodly wives and their descendants. The Nephilim followed after false gods, rejected the one true God, and fell far from God into wickedness. Why do I believe that? In Genesis 6.1, 6.2, and 6.3, the Hebrew word used here for man or men means man or mankind. It doesn't mean demigod. It doesn't mean half angel. It doesn't mean half demon. It doesn't mean anything like that. It's the same word that's used all through the Old Testament to indicate mankind as a whole. Human beings. Not some kind of human-angel mix. Okay? Now again, if you have a different viewpoint, 
I would be willing to discuss it with you. Okay. I know the first is very popular. And it's the one that I was first introduced to. I no longer subscribe to that one. Okay. The testimony of Jesus. Matthew 22, 23-30 says, The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Okay. Uh, I don't understand from Scripture that angels, fallen or otherwise, would possess the proper anatomy to produce children with, with women. I don't think they possess that, that anatomy. Okay, marriage, the entire reproductive process, is given to humans for a reason. To populate the earth. More specifically, to produce godly seed. But in any case, that's not a requirement of immortal spirits. And so not, a, not something that they're capable of doing. Okay, the same word is used for the Nephilim in the book of Numbers, uh, who were not survivors of the flood, but were born post-flood. Okay, so the same word is used for, for both Genesis 6 and Numbers chapter 13. Okay? The Nephilim in Genesis 6 were before the flood. And so that's why we have all of this, this kind of speculation going on. Because again, Genesis 1-11 through 11, there's not a lot that we can say specifically about it. We can say a whole lot more post-Genesis 11. Because now we have archaeological evidence, uh, different historical documents, because everything else was wiped out in the flood. So that kind of makes sense. But the same word is used for both pre-flood Nephilim and post-flood Nephilim. Okay? So, if that's all confusing, just take this away. Uh, the Nephilim that the Bible speaks about, I believe, are just human beings who fell away from God, uh, very far away from God. There were giants in the earth in those days because of the different environment. Same reason there were dinosaurs on the earth in those days, because of the environment. There are no dinosaurs today. Why not? Same reason. The environment. At least I believe that's the best explanation. Okay, we're introduced to a man by the name of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. At this time, man's wickedness is so great that God is going to intervene Himself to destroy all of mankind. We read many times in Scripture, just about every time in Scripture, that judgment's coming. He uses some kind of human agent. He'll send a king. He'll send another nation. He'll send someone. Jephthah, to execute judgment against someone who has, has done wrong in the sight of God. But in this case, he does it himself. 
He intervenes directly. I find that interesting. God finds one righteous man. So what does He do with the one righteous man? He spares him. He leaves off from destroying all of mankind because of the one righteous man. He not only spares Noah, but He uses him to warn His generation. We read in Hebrews 11.5, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not yet as seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Also in 2 Peter 2 and 5, it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he not only spared Noah, but he used him to preach righteousness, to preach coming judgment to this generation. We see in Scripture that he gave God gave Noah very specific instructions as to how to build the ark. He didn't tell Noah, build a boat, because rain's coming. It was a little bit more detailed than that. He had very specific instructions as to how to build this ark. Now, when you look at the instructions, a lot of people kind of scoff and laugh because there's no way this boat could sail. Well, you're absolutely right, sir, ma'am. That wasn't built to sail. It was built to float. That's all we need for this. It's just to float above the water. He's not going anywhere. Where is he going to go? There's no more shore. It's water all the way across. Where is he going to sail to? It's not built to sail. It's built to float. It's built for sturdiness. It's built for room. When God gives a man or a woman details, those details are extremely important. When we look at the law of Moses... And he starts detailing to Moses how he's going to build the tabernacle. We don't see terms like throw a curtain up here, put some hooks up there, put a tent up, and we'll call it good. Throw a box in there, and we'll call it good. He doesn't say anything like that. He gives very specific measurements, very specific ingredients, and... and, uh, Items that they need to use to build this. It's going to have specific dimensions. When we find details in the Word of God, folks, that's very important for us to understand. Those details are there for a reason. They matter. Conversely, if we don't find a specific detail in the Word of God then it probably doesn't matter or we don't need to know it or there's a principle we find in Scripture elsewhere. There are details that God gives in what He expects of His people. There are details that God gives us in what He's commanded us to do. Who He's commanded us to be. 
And we need to pay very close attention to those details. We see here that Noah is instructed to take seven of every clean beast and two of the unclean. Now that struck me as weird for a little while because clean and unclean, I don't see those really until the Mosaic Law. Clean beasts, unclean beasts. This is well before Noah or Moses' time. Well, the clean were used for sacrifice. We're going to find later they're used for meat. The unclean were most likely predators and those not good for meat or sacrifice. We find that Noah is 120 years in building the ark and preaching to his generation. 120 years. That's quite a ministry. Can you imagine how discouraged most of us would be after 120 years of preaching, teaching, witnessing? And no one's coming. No one's coming. I got my family. No one else. 120 years building the ark, preaching to his generation, and then the rains begin to fall. When we speak of the flood, there is a lot of contention over the flood, with good reason. There are some that state, well, the flood just never happened at all. We need to take that as an analogy. We need to take that as kind of a, it represents the judgment of God, the, the disfavor of God. Some will say, well, no, the flood happened, but it was, it was a local flood. It was, it was a flood that happened in Noah's local world. And there are some that believe that Noah's flood was a universal flood. It encompassed the entire earth. Now, if you're wondering, that's where I stand. That it encompassed the entire earth. And I'm going to demonstrate why I believe that way. First of all, why would people want to believe in no flood? Or why would they want to believe in a local flood? Marquise's back there. Well, there are reasons why. Geology indicates, indicates that there are billions of years that exist between the creation of the world and today. The fossil record indicates millions of years between the time the fossils were buried and today. If there were a universal flood... That would kind of throw a wrench in the works. A universal flood speaks to catastrophism or the fact that there was a catastrophe in the recent past when most people want to believe in uniformitarianism. Now, uniformitarianism is a term that basically means the present is the key to the past. In other words, we observe Processes that happen today, and we just extrapolate back into the past. And that will give us an approximate age. Next week, we're going to be talking about, I know you're going to love this, radiometric dating, carbon-14 dating, and why it's the biggest joke that has ever been perpetrated 
on humankind. I will demonstrate that stuff to you. Uh, it'll get a little deep at times, but just bear with me. I think it's important to know because that is touted all over the place. Well, we can prove it scientifically. Radiometric data, anyway. Next week, Lord willing. Uh, this week, um, uniformitarianism says we can just extrapolate back into the past. There are a lot of assumptions that we're making to do that. One of them, the only one that matters tonight, is that there wasn't some catastrophe in the past to upset that whole cart. Well, we believe that there was a catastrophe that happened. The flood. And we're going to demonstrate tonight exactly how great a catastrophe that really was. So that's why people want to believe in a local flood, or no flood at all. Because if it was just local, we can keep uniformitarianism in millions and billions of years. We've got to keep billions of years, folks, because if we don't have that kind of time, one guy said, you know, in the fairy tale, the frog turned into a prince. In evolution, the frog turns into a prince, but it takes billions of years. We just had time. <clears throat> in any case, um, so that's what uniformitarian, uniformitarianism is. Uh, the present is the key to the past. But if there were a universal flood, that upsets the whole thing. That's why no one wants a flood. Okay, so why do I believe in a universal flood? First point, the depth of the flood. Genesis seven nineteen and 20 states this. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Get that. All the high hills that were under the whole earth were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Again, we have this redundancy built in here. I'm going to quote a man by the name of H.C. Leopold in his book, Exposition of Genesis. He says this about this verse. And I quote, A measure of the waters is now made by comparison with the only available standard for such waters, the mountains. They are said to have been covered, not merely a few, but all the high mountains under all the heavens. One of these expressions alone would almost necessitate the impression that the author intends to convey the idea of the absolute universality of the flood. All the high mountains. Yet since all is known to be used in a relative sense, the writer removes all possible ambiguity by adding the phrase under all the heavens. A double all, he's referring to the Hebrew, cannot allow for so relative a sense. It almost constitutes a Hebrew superlative or something the author is really trying to emphasize. So we believe that the text disposes of the question of the universality of the flood. Unquote. Okay, so, this verse seems to indicate that every mountain on planet Earth was covered with water. And if that's the case, it could not have been a local flood. That makes sense. Second point, the duration of the flood. From the time that the 40 days of rain started to the time that God declared the earth dried and commanded Noah to exit the ark in Genesis 8, was 371 days. You can count it up. 
It's all there. 371 days. That's over a year. If it were a local flood, that would have drained off a lot quicker than 371 days. Now, Imagine the amount of water that would need to explode out of the earth as well as pour down from the sky to cover all the mountains in six weeks' time. Six weeks it took for all the mountains to be covered. That's a lot of water, folks. Really quick. Imagine the absolute destruction, the complete devastation that that would cause. Plate plate tectonic shifting. Fault lines being created. We see the scars today, folks. The fault lines that we see, those, those scars that run over the whole earth. A lot of people believe, and I, I'm one of them, it seems to make sense, that that's where the fountains of the deep broke up. A local flood would have drained off a lot earlier than 371 days. Okay, the geology of the flood. Genesis 7 and 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Okay, so we see two things happening here. The fountains of the great deep broke up and the windows of heaven were opened. Water was coming from two places. The heavens and underneath the earth. This references Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, where God divided and fixed the waters above and below the firmament. It refers specifically to Genesis 1, 2, talking about the deep. Scripture indicates that this breaking up of the deep lasted for a staggering 150 days, ending in Genesis chapter 8, verse 2, which says, The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. It lasted for this, this destruction, this, this complete reworking of the earth's surface was going on for 150 days. It's no wonder we find nothing or very little surviving that. Some people believe that we have an artifact or two in coal beds and things like that. But as far as civilization, as far as records, buildings... No. The rivers that we read about in Genesis chapter 2, they're not the same rivers today. They're not. They're named, some of them are named the same, but they're not the same rivers because the whole surface of the world was restructured. It was redone. All right, the size of the ark. I suppose if they were the original rivers, we could just trace it back and find Eden. That'd be kind of cool. Alright, the size of the ark. Okay, now, I know that most of us, when we think of the ark, we think of that picture that we always see in Sunday school. That little, you know, tub that we float, the, the bathtub, and, and, you know, you got... Giraffe head sticking out, and Noah's in there somehow, and everything's just kind of mashed together. Okay, that's not the ark, folks. 
I know, right? <laughs> I just want I just want to clarify. That is not a good depiction, an accurate depiction of Noah's Ark. So, what was the Ark? How many actually? Now that I th- how many have been to uh, the Ark exhibit? Okay, that is an that is an accurate representation of the Ark. As big as that thing is, that's how big Noah's Ark was. There are two Hebrew cubits that are used. There's a long cubit, which is about 20.4 inches. There's a common cubit of 17.5 inches. We're going to assume the shorter cubit of 17.5 inches. Using that cubit, the ark would have measured 437.5 feet long, almost 73 feet wide, and about 44 feet high. It's pretty big. It had three decks, giving it a total area of 95,700 square feet. Its total volume would have been 1,396,000 cubic feet. Why would you need an ark this big if the flood was only a local flood? What would you be storing? You wouldn't need a whole lot with a local flood. In fact, why would you need an ark at all? Here's an idea. Move. Move somewhere else where there is no flood. You had 120 years, dude. Surely you could have got somewhere else. You could have told everybody else to go somewhere else. It wasn't a local flood, folks. It was a universal flood. The testimony of the Apostle Peter. 2 Peter 3, verses 3-7 through states, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Uniformitarianism. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So according to this, people are going to be adhering to some concept of uniformitarianism. And they are not going to accept a universal judgment of God via a flood or fire. Here's another reason people kind of shy away from the universal judgment of God. Because if God judged the entire world then, what's to stop Him from judging it today? The Apostle Peter compares the universal judgment of God during the flood with the coming universal judgment of God by fire. If the flood were local, then the coming judgment would also have to be local as he is saying the one will be as the other. If the flood was universal, then the coming judgment by fire will also be universal according to the Apostle Peter under the anointing of the Holy Ghost.
Another point is that the entire human race outside the ark, we read, was destroyed. 1 Peter 3 and 20 says, "...which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." How many souls were saved? Well, if this were a local flood, all kinds of people would have been saved. Eight souls were saved. Well, maybe, maybe this verse means that eight souls were saved out of the local flood. Second Peter 2.5 in the NESB translation says this, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Well, that sounds a little bit more specific. He preserved Noah and seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. How many ungodly were there? Well, read Genesis chapter 6. Everyone. Everyone but Noah. Luke 17, 26-30 says this, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also in the days of the Son of Man. So shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. As it was then, so it shall be. What fascinates me about studies like this is more and more I start seeing the interrelatedness of Scripture. I start seeing how intertwined these, these doctrines and these ideas are. That God, from the very beginning, was talking about things that weave through the entire course of biblical history. It's absolutely fascinating to me. But it's also a warning to us because sometimes we're tempted to start tugging on some of those strings. Start pulling on some of those strings. And if we tug on those things too hard, we're going to unravel a lot of other areas of this tapestry. What do I mean by that? These foundational doctrines that we first encounter in Genesis form the basis of our understanding of the rest of Scripture. Case in point, the example we've seen tonight. The days of Noah. How people were, their, their ideas, their ideals. How they conducted themselves. What they thought about things. Right before the Son of Man comes back, men are going to be the same way. The same way. And as judgment came on Noah's generation, 
judgment is also going to come on this generation. The generation that's here when God comes back. No man knows the day or the hour, but He is coming back. We know that for a fact. And when He does come back, folks, the the door to the ark is closed. It's closed. We've seen in previous lessons how our belief about creation and the age of the earth affects our very salvation. If there are millions and billions of years, if if Adam is just representative of the human race, and he was standing on millions and billions of years of dead things, if that's true, then we have death before sin. And we don't really see the, the importance of that until we start reading the New Testament and Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary. That death is the punishment for sin. Understanding this way back in Genesis, how important a concept this is. Is it important when God created the earth or, or how long it took? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it's important. If we don't understand this, folks, then we become... Uh, vulnerable to error. And we're first introduced to these things in the book of Genesis. Our belief about the flood we just discovered affects our belief of God's coming judgment, whether it be local or whether it be universal. All right. The importance of understanding Scripture is more and more. Uh, how do I say it? As our society drifts farther and farther away from truth, as our society begins to uh, believe in and live out presuppositions that are contrary to Scripture. as that moves farther and farther away, we need to get into the Word of God more and more. Not only that, we need to be able to explain this to someone else. We do need to have a ready answer why we believe the way we do. The days of saying, because that's what the pastor teaches, are done. That doesn't, I don't know if it ever worked, but it definitely doesn't work today. It doesn't work, folks. Because they have, if I can call them pastors, that are teaching them the exact opposite things. So which one is right? How do you answer that? We can say God is right, but that's based on my presuppositions. They don't believe in God or the Bible. So they're not going to accept that. It's true. But do we want to be right? Or do we want to be effectual in leading someone to truth? We can be right all day long, folks. We can demonstrate that everyone else is wrong. Bless God. That doesn't do anything in leading someone to what is true. 
That's the purpose of all of this. We need to lead people to truth. We need to allow God to give them the revelation of truth. The same revelation you and I have that we received of God. We didn't find this because we're so smart. God revealed these things to us. Absolutely. And God wants to reveal it to them as well. And He'll use you and He'll use me to do it. But we need to speak the language, as it were. I think that's very important in today's culture. We need to start with their understanding. We sit down with someone and teach them a Bible study. They may agree to it because they're being polite. They may nod their head. Got any questions? No, that was great. Thank you. They didn't get anything. They disagreed with all of it. So where do we start then? We start with them, where they're at. They don't believe in the Bible? Okay, well, what do they believe? What do they believe about reality? What do they believe about knowledge and truth? How do, how do they think that, that people should live their lives? These are simple questions that anyone can ask. And their answers will be very telling. We have answers for that, right? Everybody has answers for that. That will tell us where to start. Next 17 again. The Apostle Paul speaking to the Grecians. He didn't break open the Old Testament and start preaching Jesus like he did in the synagogue. Why not? It was pretty effective there overall. Why didn't he do that with the Grecians? Same reason we can't do it today. They didn't accept Scripture. They had all kinds of weird philosophies. All kinds of weird ideas about reality. How they should live their lives. The nature of truth. And that's where Paul started. You worship the unknown God. Fantastic. Let me introduce you to Him. And he started where? With the creation of everything. That He's the Creator of all things. And because of that, this is how He is and this is what He expects. And because of that, and then He moves on and on and on. But He builds on what they already have. If we do that, folks, we will be much more effectual, much more effective in reaching people with truth. I don't like the present state of our society any more than you, but this is where we're at. It's where we're at. And I, I think it behooves us as Christians to apply ourselves just a little bit to understanding, to knowledge, biblical knowledge. We, we can all learn. We can all grow. We just need a reason. We just need a powerful enough reason. My reason is because my children, my grandchildren, that's what they're going to be getting. They're going to be getting billions of years. 
Evolution's proved the Bible wrong. Radiometric dating, sowing billions of years. Science versus religion. Most children that go off to college leave church. But most of them decided to do that in junior high school, middle school, statistically speaking. Why? I'm going to say this too. I have ought against a traditional Sunday school, and here's why. While we're teaching our students Daniel in the lion's den, while we're teaching our students Jonah and the whale, which are important, they're there for a reason, what they're getting in preschool and kindergarten and elementary school is a very sophisticated, naturalistic apologetic. That's what they're getting from preschool on up. My first book on dinosaurs. It's a cute book. It's an awesome book. Preschool book. Teaches billions of years. Teaches evolution. I'm telling you folks, this is a big deal. And we need to pay attention to it. It's not just a a passing fad. It's not. It's here to stay. And we we need to be equipped... We need to be capable of answering the questions that they're going to have. That may take a little bit of application on our part, but that's okay. We're capable of doing that. We can teach old dogs new tricks. Amen. We do that all the time. <laughs> I'm not looking at Brother DeMuth. <clears throat> Amen. So, as we go through this study, please understand there's a reason for it. It's not just because I love the topic, which I do, but I feel like it's necessary for us to to at least be introduced to this, be comfortable with some of the terminology that they're using, that they're steeped in, and use this to turn it back around so that God can reveal truth to them. Amen. Don't we want to be effectual for the kingdom of God? Praise God. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for your so great salvation. I'm thankful, Lord, that one day you revealed truth to me. I wasn't seeking it. I thought I knew everything. But Lord Jesus, you proved me wrong. I didn't know a thing. Thank you, Jesus, for the revelation of truth. Help us to be effectual in teaching this to others. Not just knowing it, not just applying it to our lives, but to be able to teach, apt to teach, to study, to show ourselves approved. Hallelujah, Jesus. So that you can use each and every one of us the way you desire to, to reach this world for you. Bless the people of God, I pray. Minister to their every need. Bring us back to the house of God that they appointed. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. You're dismissed.